We are now recording, correct? triple checking because if I start talking, it looks like it. All right, we're recording. Good. Okay. So today, this week, we're talking about paper and collections and basically just book and paper today. Um, I, here we go. on our, I'll get my act together, I'm sorry. So we have some announcements today. So um, we'll chat a bit about the virtual lab one and two. Um, today we're talking about paper and books, a brief history, some book structures and handling collections. So here's some of my announcements. Just want to remind everyone to update Zoom manually because it's ridiculous and doesn't do it automatically. And, um, I had a planned on using annotate, but that slide just, it was giving me troubles. So um, we'll talk about how to annotate another time. I had to rearrange this week and next week just a bit. I just had to bump photographs to the next, to next week. I think it just fits a little bit better with um, the media and film that we're talking about as far as like care of and all that. And then the LibGuide, is finally up and running. So I think that link is in the syllabus, if I remember correctly. If you wanted to post any of your pictures or things onto social media, I'm good with that. Um, got your little hashtag here, just the course number and uh, prez. And then you can tag me in it at conservatal, which is my screen name on Instagram and Twitter. I think that's it for that. Might also be on TikTok, but honestly, I have an account, never used it. Um, quiz one, I know a couple of you emailed me and I sent out an email, um, but just in case anyone missed that, for quiz one, that forced, uh, the fourth question, um, I thought I had set it up in one way and I didn't. So to get full points for that, you just need to select all the options for that last question. Apologize for that. And then I also have the Google form set up for the snapshot, snapshot interview uh, questions. So if you have questions for conservators or people in the preservation profession, um, you can go ahead and post in there and they'll pop up anonymously. I don't have it saving um, emails or um, any identifying information like that. Um, unless you want to, by all means, you can put your name in it, but basically, just feel like you guys feel a little bit more comfortable if it's anonymous, so. All right, another Google form that I had put up and I think I had a link on the homepage is, but I have more questions. And that's if you have any questions that I may have skipped over or missed or didn't cover that you think I should have covered during lecture or during the week, you can ask those in there and you can fill that form out as many times as you want or add as many questions in the same form. So for this week, I had one question. It was about the safety. Um, someone was a little bit concerned about how I was holding my book and slicing it open. Um, fair point. And so I have done a little bit of Google Foo and found a better solution 
for having a video of me doing the repairs like a top-down overhead view inside of a presentation. But sadly, I don't think we have any time for those types of demos today, but maybe I can um, get some in next week. Um, so there's that. Does anyone have any questions real quick about last week that doesn't pertain to the virtual lab that they wanna ask? You can throw it in chat or um, unmute and ask it, it's up to you. I'll wait for just a minute. Did anyone do a paperback? Um, I still have, I wanna say about seven or eight virtual labs left to grade that have been submitted. And I believe I saw one paperback, if I remember right. There were a couple that looked like they might've been per perfect bound, um, but I think I've written um, in the comments, most of those is um, what I think the finding actually is. But again, hard to see on pictures. All right, so if there's no questions, I'll go ahead and skip forward. So I'm just gonna go over the virtual lab real quick. I got a little poll for you while we start, launch that. Um, go ahead and throw your answer in there real quick. I thought it'd be kind of a fun lab to start with just to kind of get you out of your comfort zone and you know throw your brain in a little loop there. Uh, a couple of you sent me videos telling me that it, you weren't sure if you, you could do it or not <laughs> or that you had to get a different book um, than one that you had chosen at first. So, but I've had a lot of fun reading them so far and putting commentary in. All right, so we got, so far we got 77% yet says yes, total blast. And about 10% say, ah, oh, it was basically sacrilege. And only one saying they were indifferent. 3%, excuse me. All right. There we go. has decided to do something a little strange. One second. Hit a button I shouldn't have hit, apparently. <laughs> Let's try this again. Sorry, rookie here. I apologize. Clearly, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> All jazzed up after class. Now, yeah. great. Okay, now my earbuds are falling out. It's going to be a fun night, guys. Okay, so for the virtual lab, um, let's see some questions that I got a lot in the report section was 
Um, most, if not all of the hardbound books that I saw in there were actually case bound. Um, you can tell because a lot of the papers will be folded over in little sections. So you'll usually have somewhere between four and eight pages folded over and sewn through those folds. And those sections are actually called signatures. And then the signatures are all sewn together. And then um, adhesive is added with the, uh, a lot of you mentioned that tan or brown thick paper that was on the spine. And that's actually a support that will hold the pages together. Because if you didn't have that on there and all the adhesive on there, when you went to go open the book and lay it flat, you'd be able to see straight through the sewing and um, into that spine um, like uh, fold out in the, in the spine area. Okay, and then the proper phrasing for it is like, this book is case bound. So instead of saying like it's, this uses case binding, it's you just say it's case bound. So just a small thing um, that I thought I'd mention. And then last note or question is someone mentioned that they may or may not have actually licked a book and I cannot condone that. And once we get to the hazards section um, later in the semester towards the end, uh, you, you'll understand why, why I cannot condone the licking of the books. Although I do uh, commend you for your archeological take on discovering what the book is about. So I got a good laugh out of that. I'm still trying to debate if that was a, uh, a joke or not. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with it was a joke. Okay, so for the virtual lab two, was there any more questions about virtual lab one? How does one uh, find out what kind of binding it is, like case bound and set? Sure, um, there, is, there are a lot of different, um, uh, like visual um, glossaries or um, trying to think of what it was. I thought I had shared a, a, a link somewhere. Um, maybe I am just thinking I didn't hadn't um, where you can see the different variations of binding um, or in the, is it the A to Z Bookbinders dictionary, there's options there. And then if you get onto um, Pinterest, funnily enough, a really good resource as well. If you type in bookbinding, you can usually find all kinds of different types. Um, however, generally speaking, for like mass produced books, um, it, it's really going to be case bound because that's been the most prolific type of binding since the mid 18, no, 1700s. Um, so it, that's basically what that means is all the signatures are folded and, fold, and uh, sewn together. And then the only thing attaching the text block, so all the signatures sewn together with the, um, the paste downs and the flyleaf, that whole section there is called the text block. And if just the paste downs are pasted to the covers, that's gonna be case bound. There's nothing else holding it on. Whereas some of the older style books um, and the name of this 
type of binding is obvious is eluding me right now, which go figure. Um, they they sew the signatures onto a cord or tapes, um, like fabricy tapes, and then they sew those tapes into the cover and then glue those tapes onto the cover and then glue the paste downs on. And that has a different name and it's it's totally eluding me right now. It's not one that I encounter very often um, doing repairs currently. And then the second most common is the perfect binding and spiral bound, and like the saddle stitch, which is like um, magazines that are stapled on the side, that's a saddle stitch. So those are the most common ones that you'll see um, in any given library. Does that make sense? Um, is it normal for the spines and pages to have so much glue? Perhaps some journals that are case bound without glue. Um, yes, it is very normal, especially if they are done um, through like machining processes. So if it's not done by hand, they're gonna have a lot more glue just because it's a fail safe. And a lot of you notice that your adhesives, the glue and the spines had different colors and that could mean different things. It could be different types of glue. Um, if it's getting really brittle and cracking, uh, that's probably a type of PVA that was used in binding pre 1980 and it has I keep wanting to say a PET, and I don't think that's the name of the, the adhesive. Um, but yeah, it gets a lot more brittle and it starts, it creaks and cracks when you open it. A lot more of the artist books and like the high-end journals and things like that, they won't have the glue, as much of the glue. Um, but when you get into like these publishers bindings that are textbooks and, um, and stuff like that, then you usually see glue seeping out of the of the seams. Um, so does that answer that question? I hope. I'm discovering that it's very tricky to try and like explain and teach this class in a virtual format without having like proper technology to like back me up with examples and stuff. Um, I went hunting for all my pictures today on different types of bindings and whatnot and supposed to be on my shared drive from work and I could not for the life of me get it to open. It was erroring out on me. So um, there's a suspicious lack of really useful pictures. So when I get to the work in the next day or two, I'll, I'll upload those for you guys to see um, where it'll probably make a little bit more sense. Okay, so virtual lab two, just really briefly, is basically just a book binding um, activity. Um, so I have given you, I think, four or five different options um, as far as what you can do for your book binding. Um, the saddle stitch is going to be the absolute easiest. Basically, it's just taking four or five sheets of paper, folding them in half, poking some holes in the fold, and then sewing together, sewing them together in a very particular um, uh, path. Um, I'll, I'll get to that, but um, that's going to be the easiest one. Uh, takes only a couple minutes to do. Uh, it's called, I, I do it 
at least 100 times a day with music scores. Um, very, very easy. Um, then the second easiest, and I put these in um, order of ease, the option two is the Japanese stab binding. And I uploaded a video of one of my previous students, um, uh, work study students, um, making a Japanese stab binding. And if you guys had come to Preservation Week, not this past year, but in previous years, I think two years previous, um, I'd had a little table set up in the library where um, we were trying to pull people in to do um, that, that binding. So that is the second option. The third one is doing a case-bound book. This is going to be the hardest option of the three named options. Um, and so I uploaded some YouTube tutorial, the one I thought was the easiest to follow. And I think it's seven or eight videos at about seven or eight minutes long. And you can kind of do it at the same time that they're doing. Um, you'll just need to make sure you gather all your materials before you embark on that adventure. Option four is your choice. So if you have a, if you go onto Pinterest or, um, or just search around Google, uh, for different types of artist books or bookbinding tutorials. If you see one that you want to try, um, go ahead and send me the link to the one that you would like to attempt. And then I will let you know if I think that's a good option or not. Because um, there's some that look really fun and very easy, like a caterpillar binding. And I can tell you from experience that it is one of the hardest bindings I've ever done, but it looks really, really easy. So um, just so I can make sure you're not getting it over your head and um, ripping your hair out and ripping a book in half. Not that I know that from experience, but you know, we'll go with that. And then number option five is the alternate assignment. So if you have no interest in doing any kind of book binding or um, hands-on activity like that, there's a written assignment in here um, and the full directions for that are see, on the outline, the weekly outline that I uploaded. And I think I also obviously have it in the assignment um, file. So that one is basically just writing a short paper, short essay about um, the history and function of any of the bindings that you've heard about or are interested in. So any questions about Virtual Lab 2 before I move on? None. Okay. Um, because I know that this is going to be a really tricky um, lab for some of you, I highly encourage you, if you have questions or you're sitting there doing your binding right then, feel free to shoot me an email if you need some advice or, a, you know, help. Um, especially if you're doing it during like business hours because I'm home and the kids are finally in, in like a summary school type of thing for a portion of the day. Um, so we can probably jump on the Zoom chat and I can help you out a bit or at least message through email or whatever else. So if you need that option, that is there for you. Okay. Cool. All right, so now I have a very sporadic history of paper and books and book structure. 
Um, I'm basically just hitting on the important bits. I don't want to get too far into the weeds. I know there's a lot of history and stuff in the readings this week. And I highly recommend if you have about an hour or so to listen to the C-Word Conservators podcast um, episode that I mentioned. I think it's called Papers, Please. It was a good one where they actually interview a paper conservator. And on that note, I plan to interview in the next week a photographs conservator for a video to upload next week. So if you have questions for a photograph conservator, I believe she also does some film as well and blueprints. Um, I think she specializes in salted paper. Um, so if you have those types of questions, feel free to add those to the Google form. So um, yeah, I really enjoy that podcast. Uh, it's a good one. All right, let's get to the important bits here. So brittle paper. So why is it important to know the history and the makeup of paper um, and the components that are in books and letters? So paper, um, binding materials, adhesives, uh, ink, all those things. Why, why is it so important? Well, as future archivists or preservation minded people, it's important to know that, you know, we're not just getting blank sheets of paper in, right? So we need to know how these things all interact together and the best way to deal with each of them. Because one sheet of paper that has a certain type of ink, you may house totally different than another item um, that looks maybe the same. So let's get a bit technical. Um, go ahead and pull out your chemistry hats from, I don't know, high school, undergrad. Um, so we're, we're doing a little chemistry 101 throwback here. Um, you're going to be so awesome, so surprised, amazed how much chemistry is actually in um, preservation, conservation. All right, so we have brittle paper. And the idea of preservation really started around the time that people were really noticing since early 1900s up until about 1980s that people were really starting to notice, hey, there's a problem with paper. Um, we've made these books and you know, we, we made these mass books. We thought they were gonna last forever and um, they're not. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, but why aren't they lasting? Uh, no. So you look at, we need fast production needs. People are starting to get that the information out. They want to share these novels that they've written, or just in, you know information. It's pre pre radio, pre TV, pre internet, obviously, all that. So then there's a huge demand on all of these supplies for paper making, which drives up the cost. And now, trying to find ways to drive that cost down, and innovating and doing all these crazy things to make paper, making a paper substance, but it's now chemically inferior um, paper to what used to be made. And it now it turns yellow and brown and starts flaking apart um, when you even you know, like when you look at it. A great example of this is like old newspapers. Um, so things that were um, high use or for short term use, like a newspaper is expected, you would read it and then, you know, you would recycle it or throw it away 
and get another one the next day. They didn't really care about um, having a long lasting paper there. Um, whereas if you're writing a novel or you know, um, family Bibles were a big one, you would want something that was gonna last more than you know, 10, 15, 20 years. So what had changed during this time was that they started using less of the um, more stable compounds, the hemp and the cotton byproducts and um, things that were just very stable. Um, and they started replacing that by ground up wood pulp. And there's a chemical inside of that wood pulp called uh, lignin, and that is very acidic. And so that acid starts, well, because that acid is now part of the paper instead of on top of the paper or, you know, uh, uh, ink that's on the paper, um, it's actually physically part of the entire structure, like through and through. So now it's very acidic and it, it just starts breaking it apart. Um, I was trying to come up with a good analogy to that, but the only thing I can come up with at the moment is like, if you have um, cream or milk and you squeeze some lemon juice or pour some vinegar into that cream and milk and how it separates. So you get the watery bits and then you get the chunks. Um, it's kind of not the best example, but at least a visual of what's happening to that paper, but just on a smaller like molecular level. Um, so it just makes it really weak, really fragile. Then another problem that you have is they start adding alum to the pulp as well, which is a sizing. And basically what sizing is, is it's a, um, a material that is added to paper. So you can either add it to the top or add it to the inside while it's still in pulp form. And it helps prevent feathering text. So if you're writing with a pen on it, that the, the pen isn't going to bleed out and you're going to get fuzzy writing. It keeps it nice and crisp. Um, another place that you'll see sizing is on glossy paper. So if you have any of those like really pretty photo books or things, um, you'll have a, the, the paper's glossy and that's because the it's been sized externally. And basically a lot of the bookbinding sizing is the same makeup the same it's the same exact thing as a lot of the adhesives that we use in um, book binding so um, ethyl cellulose or um, rice starch paste or wheat start wheat starch paste and so if you get one of those glossy books wet you're basically just reactivating the glue and if you get a glossy book wet and then don't separate the pages immediately and dry them immediately while they're separated, um, you've basically just glued the pages closed and there is no recovering it after that point. So that's a little fun fact for you. Um, then another thing that makes paper really weak is that it went from being hand milled, the pulp was being hand milled to being mechanically milled. And what that did was it just chopped up the paper a lot finer. So now you have a finer paper and a smoother paper but now the fibers are very, very short and it's just easier to tear and rip and becomes more fragile in that way as well. So another bad thing about the mechanical milling is now that they're using machining to 
rip apart and tear apart this paper. You know, put, think about putting water in a blender and then paper in there as well, which is one way to make recycled paper. Um, but now that blade starts chipping off. And so now you've got these microscopic bits of metal in the paper. And anybody who's familiar with really old books, if you open the book, you'll see like some reddish brown um, smears or something on the pages. It's called foxing. And that's basically just iron oxide in the paper or rust in the paper um, after, you know, decades of humidity fluctuations and temperature fluctuation, fluctuations, your book is just rusting from the inside out, uh, from inside paper out, which I always thought was kind of interesting. And then another thing that makes, um, so the sizing um, is not a fixative for the ink. Basically, it's just, if you think about, you have a piece of um, like a, a dress shirt and you get it ironed and pressed and starched. You're basically starching the paper in the same way. So it just makes it more firm and gets the wrinkles out, makes it easier to write on and gives you a smoother surface to write on. So your, your ink isn't just bleeding out into nothingness. So it would be the difference of writing with like a marker on a sheet of paper um, or on a piece of fabric and how the fabric doesn't have a sizing agent in it, that ink will just bleed out. Does that make sense? Um, then another thing that makes it, uh, the paper very fragile is bleaching it. So you get this really pretty white paper versus that old ivory shade that you would get in the more historical books. Um, so that bleaching aspect of the paper also weakens it. So now we've got um, craft supplies, we've got the wood pulp, we've got the, the extra sizing in the paper pulp as well. We've got short fibers, metal bits, bleaching the paper, and then even some people would add more like resins and other chemicals into their paper um, for, you know, proprietary finger quotes uh, reasons. So you have all these new things that people started adding to or trying to innovate with to make paper more readily available. And it did, but it also made it less stable and less reliable in the long run. So um, there is a way to make really fast, durable paper um, these days. And basically, there's, it's just an extra chemical process that they do that separates the cellulose from the other wood bits. And the cellulose is basically the, the, it's the main component in plant cell walls. And it's what gives plants their structure, their rigidity. So it's very fibrous. And um, basically, they're just taking all the cellulose and pulling it away from all the other leftover bits of the plant when they're processing the pulp. And that helps make the paper more structurally sound. Then this was not developed, but like definitely more perfected in the late 70s, early 80s because of this brittle book problem. Libraries were um, going out and talking about how these books weren't gonna last. And this is around the time that like real preservation and conservation departments were coming up because they 
books were only lasting 10, 15 years, and then they would just fall apart um, due, to, due to the acid problem. Now there's actually a, um, it's the NISO, the National Institute of Standardized Operations or something. I, I can't remember the exact acronym, um, but there's now an, uh, um, the NISO standard for making um, structurally sound paper. So it has to have good tear resistance. It has to have a 2% alkaline reserve and less than 1% of lignin in it. And it has to have a pH of 7.5 to 10.0. So it has to be fairly close to neutral pH to slightly basic, so slightly alkaline. Um, so then we have a couple more definitions I've got up here for you is H2SO4 is sulfuric acid or sulfur dioxide. Same thing, just different word. And then um, alkaline is basically just basic versus acidic. Couldn't remember. I didn't know how much you guys remembered from chemistry or if you took as much chemistry as I had to. Um, my mom was a science teacher in high school. Lots of science in my background. So wanted to give you just a kind of idea of some of the things that you can find in paper and where they're at on the acid and base scale, the pH scale. So any, the scale goes from zero to 14 and the closer to zero you get, the more acidic you get. And the closer to base or closer to 14 you get, the more alkaline you get. So several of the things that you get in paper, you get sulfuric acid, which is really, really acidic. Um, and that's, um, that's the bit that's breaking down the paper and you get a lot in the leathers and um, parchments as well, which we'll go over in a second. Another thing that they were adding to um, parchment and vellum, which yes, I can get into that, is uh, formaldehyde to strengthen it after weakening it with all these other new processes that they had started. Um, wheat starch paste, which is an adhesive that you can use or a sizing medium is about six to 6.5. Um, and that, that number totally depends on the acidity of the water you use to make that. So <laughs> when it gets into conservation, you actually gotta be really careful about um, your pH level of your water. Um, then lime or calcium carbonate can be anywhere from 10 to 12.4, depending on how much um, calcium and how much um, bicarbonate you have in there. <laughs> when I first um, started in a lab at the university, the, my, the previous Amanda that was there, the previous preservation technician, um, she had taken the big jugs of methyl cellulose that we have, which is another like um, uh, adhesive. And I think it's one of the, I think it's on this synthetic end, if I remember right, but it's very similar to wheat starch paste. Um, and she had taken it and put, measured all of them into little snack size baggies and then just put meth on the front. And so when I started, I just had these little baggies of white bags labeled meth. And um, I got a good kick out of that. That was an ongoing joke in the lab for quite a while because <laughs> I've got the meth lab. It was a good one. Um, uh, how to use it to repair a book. I actually, I don't like methyl cellulose as an adhesive. I, it's, it's not very strong. So if you're looking for something that's a very weak adhesive, um, 
it's a good one. I also have had some issues with staining because you have to add more water to it to get it to work in a way that adhesive should work because um, it gets very gelatinous. Um, but the way I like to use the methyl cellulose is to, when I'm doing cleaning of books, it's very good at pulling um, dirt and grime out of the spine particularly. And it will very easily reactivate adhesives that are on there. So a lot of you, when you mentioned you couldn't see underneath that brown um, tab um, or that brown piece of paper that was in, um, in the spine, if you were to put a big old clump of um, methyl cellulose on that and then use a paintbrush after a minute or two um, or a micro spatula and just kind of slightly um, scrape it off, it'll reactivate the adhesive just enough for you to be able to pull it off without damaging anything else underneath of it. But once it dries, it also adds as, or acts like an adhesive. So I, it's, it's not my favorite substance to work with, but there's a lot of really cool stuff going on with like cleaning with microgels um, and, and methyl cellulose with that, with different solvents. And that's actually really interesting. If you're really interested in science and chemistry, uh, conservation is definitely a killer um, field. Okay, let me see where I'm at in my notes, seeing I've tangible about twice now. All right. So, here we go. So here are some of the common things that you'll come across in um, basically library preservation, the, the materials, and you're gonna come across literally everything. This is, this is just like bare bones, the things that I could think of that I see the most often in my job. Um, so we'll just kind of skip around. And if you have questions, feel free to throw them in the chat and I'll try and uh, look up occasionally. So we have parchment, which is basically any skin that's prepared for writing. And then some other people will say that it refers strictly to sheepskin, but there's people that I really respect in this field who say the opposite thing here. So, so this is one of those, like, it's any skin prepared for writing, but some people also say that it's strictly sheepskin and that's for parchment. Then vellum is calfskin only. Um, so the way that you would treat these um, skins to get them prepared for uh, writing on is traditionally the oldest way to do it was um, using a mixture of salt, flour, and various vegetable products and byproducts. And they would basically ferment it and clean it and, um, and uh, very complicated. We don't have time to get into some cool stuff about that at the moment. Um, but those are some of the traditional ways to prepare that skin for writing. So they figured if they cleaned it and got all the, um, the bits that the bugs and uh, stuff would actively try to go for first, that it made a really good um, writing uh, surface. And then later they discovered that if they add lime, uh, lime water to parchment, it makes it more stable. Um, it makes it a more stable leather, excuse me. And but lime, if you remember from the slide back, let me go back, is it? Oh, boo. No. There we go. Um, lime here, calcium carbonate, is very um, alkaline. So you add that to the acidic um, 
vegetable products. And a lot of times they would use urine and other vinegars and you name it. They probably used it for leather tanning and, and preparing parchment. Um, but so you add the, the base to it and it would make it, it would stabilize it just a little bit more. Sticky parchment from now on. I like sticky parchment, works for me. Um, so as far as parchment and vellum are concerned, the deterioration um, that you would see, so starting at about the 19th century, sulfur compounds were starting to be added to the curing process and to the lime and the water baths to speed up the processing. So it would process the, 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 the skins faster, but it also would make a weaker skin. So then they would come back in and later they discovered if you added some formaldehyde that that would counteract the lime making it weak, but now the formaldehyde made it really, really stiff. <laughs> um, and if you're not familiar with formaldehyde, that's the same thing that they used to use to um, prepare bodies for burial. So it makes a stiffer skin and it's less elastic. So then they tried to find other ways to make it more elastic. And so now you can see this like constant, like, you know, back and forth trying to, to get this product, like what they need. So, and then the sulfur would actually stay in the skins even after they were done rinsing and they turned into sulfuric acid, which reacted with the calcium carbonate and it would produce gypsum. <laughs> And gypsum is what turns the parchment gray. So if you've ever seen um, those old scrolls or um, the books bound in vellum and parchment, and they look kind of weird, like dingy gray, it's because the crazy chemical reactions went on during processing, and now it's got gypsum on it. So parchment is also subject to photochemical reactions. So um, basically, if you leave the parchment in an area that has high UV, then the parchment will actually react with hydro, no, the oxygen reacts with the UV and turns into hydrogen peroxide. So it forms hydrogen peroxide inside the skin, which makes it brittle and fragile. And by fragile in this instance, it doesn't mean like cracky and break, it actually turns it into like gelatin. So you get this like gelatinous mush as a cover of your book that you were um, reading. Chemistry is fun, guys. Um, uh, yeah, embalming fluid. Yeah, that's the word. I should know that. My uncle's a mortician. Um, yeah, I, I actually have the section next on, on inks, so that's good note. Um, then leather is any animal skin. Um, so I think most people think of leather as like cow or um, calf or whatever. Um, there was actually a webinar a couple months back on how to make fish skin leather um, that I sadly missed. So I'll have to go back and watch that one, but very interesting. So the animal skins are basically, the leather is just a network of proteins and these proteins are very fibrous. So they're very long and they uh, like inner, they, they're like woven into each other. So it's very like structurally sound and, and, and hard to, yeah, I'll see if I can share a link to that. 
um, very hard to like rip apart. Um, and the the component inside of the leather that makes it so stable and so sturdy is collagen. And um, then for leather books, particularly the deterioration you'd get specifically attacking the collagen is what's called red rot. And that's like the most common um, leather problem, leather deterioration that you see. Um, and you know red rot when you see it, you touch it and you basically got powdery red dust all over your hands. And the reason for that is, um, there's actually a bunch of different reasons. And it could be a um, just improperly um, uh, prepared leather. It could be um, totally drawing a blank on any of the other ones. I've always, I was always taught that it was improperly prepared leather. And then I just read a couple of days ago about some other things that would create it. Can't remember what they are at the moment. If I remember, I'll add it into the notes. Um, so what, one of the reasons, one of the things that causes red rot is um, sulfuric dioxide or sulfur dioxide is absorbed from the atmosphere and converted to sulfuric acid. That's that 0 0.5 um, acidity. And that sulfuric acid actually catalyzes the acid and catalyzing from chemistry terminology, if you don't remember, is um, basically something, it's an action or a chemical that causes something else to happen. I think that's the easiest way I can explain that without getting too crazy into it. Um, so it catalyzes the acid hydrolysis and it breaks down the molecule, the molecular chains of the collagen and just makes it incredibly weak and turns that really fibrous, amazing, super sturdy leather into red dust. Now, another fun one that wasn't in the book and that I am just remembering now is a lot of times you'll have someone come up to you and they'll hand you a book and they'll say, a leather bound book, and they'll say, oh my gosh, I think this has some mold on it. It's got this white bits on it. And you take a little deeper look at it and you, um, under a magnifying glass, or if you use like a loop or um, other uh, magnifying things, tools, um, you can actually see that they sparkle and it looks like little white crystals or like ivory crystals. Um, and if you see that on leather, basically what that is, and it's the greatest net name ever, it's called fatty spew. And what fatty spew is, is the, because leather is made up of um, animal skin, right? You've got fat cells in the skin and now you've processed it and put it on a book. Now that book goes on the shelf and now you have heat and humidity going up and down and expanding and contracting that book. And basically what it's doing is pushing out the fat, the natural fats from the animal skin out of the book and then crystallizing the fat on the outside and that's what you're seeing. So it's not mold, it's literally just crystallized fat on the outside of the book, but it's called fatty spew. It's also called um, fatty bloom. And there's a couple other terms for it, but fatty spew is my favorite. And one of these days I'm gonna make a shirt with a fatty spew team on it or something. I haven't decided yet, but that's gonna be great. Um, 
So again, in the manufacturing of leather, the sulfur compounds will stay even after washing, which is why it gets so um, weak. And then the sulfuric acid, another name for that is oil of vitriol. If you've read any of those old, like, I don't know, uh, Victorian books, there's always someone talking about like oil of vitriol or whatever. And basically it's just a mineral acid made of oxygen, hydrogen, and sulf, um, sulfuric acid. It's colorless, odorous, a viscous liquid, and it's miscible with um, water at all concentrations. So that basically means that it's this like crazy acid that's super, super acidic, and it could be mixed in water, colorless, odorless. You're not gonna see it in the book. It's just invisible little demon hiding in the paper, and it's killing all your paper and your leather. And then um, I think that's what I've got there for leather. <laughs> Yay, leather and parchment. Any questions about leather and parchment? Bellum, besides wanting to join my fatty spew team here. Okay, great. Sorry, my earbuds are falling out. All right, so see if I can quickly go over some adhesives and in ink. Um, there's adhesives that can be bound um, um, mechanically and chemically. And so when you're using different types of adhesives for different reasons in bookbinding or in conservation, you'll wanna know the process. Are they just hold, are, are they holding the two pieces of paper together or the two items you're, uh, you're gluing together or are they doing a chemical change in the paper to keep them together? It's kind of a hard thing to explain without visualizing it now that I'm actually trying to say it out loud. <laughs> so um, it, basically when you go to repair books, if you're in a preservation department, always keep really good notes about what you're using and do your research and make sure you're not using something that's going to permanently change the item that you're working with. And even though, even if you're only building boxes to house these things in, I always like to use the, the glues or the adhesives if they're going to be in close contact with the book. So if I'm pasting down um, the, the paste downs or the, the, the bottom paper in a, in a box to hold a book, I'll make sure that I use reversible um, adhesives on that just in case for whatever reason there's any issue with um, the adhesive seeping out or coming into contact with it. Um, you just make sure you're aware of what chemicals and things you're using. Um, then there are, in the chapter, I think it covers pretty well over the deterioration of adhesives, but a lot of you noticed that there was a like very fragile um, glue in the spines and it would get dark or brittle. There was some staining and it'll stain both the paper and the cloth and anything it'll come into. And it'll crumble apart and it'll fail completely. So the book will just start falling apart. And then um, see, skip through here because I'm running out of time. Then some common damages that you can see with various types of adhesive are discoloration and see, tapes are another one. Um, with the adhesive failure, rubber cement fails a lot. It's a horrible, horrible substance. Um, Self-adhesive tapes, so your clear tapes that you use um, like on like gift wrap, 
duct tape is notoriously bad. If I get another book with duct tape on it, I'm just throwing it. Um, but these things, they'll interact with the environment, the humidity and the temperature, and they just start breaking apart. They'll swell and they'll contract and just fall apart. Um, and even the archival tapes will do this. So any of those pressure tapes, that you've, if you've worked in an archive or volunteered and they say that's archival tape, there's even some issues with that. Electrical tape, I've also seen books repaired with that. And my issue with electrical tape is it gets, if it gets hot, if you leave the book in a car or whatever, it starts getting tacky again. And then like it, it that the tacky bit of the electrical tape, the same way that duct tape does, will actually um, seep out from underneath the rubberized uh, top portion and seep out. There's also a lot of very, um, uh, harsh chemicals, I guess you could say, in the electrical tape that give off a lot of smells. Um, that'll do that too. Painter's tape, yeah, same thing there. Really, any any of the um, tape adhesives, um, I don't recommend any of them. So here's my thing even washi tape yet. So here's my thing with repairing books is you have to know what you're repairing them for. And we'll get into this a little bit later, but you know, it's coming up now. So I'll, I'll go ahead and mention it is it's totally fine um, to repair circulating books that are high use and you know, they're just going to get a good beating. Repair that in whatever way that you can keep it in circulation. When you want to start getting into like the nitty gritty chemistry side of things, um, that's, that's usually, I'm only concerned about that type of thing when it comes to repairing special collections style or archive items. Um, I would never repair a book with just any kind of clear tape. There are several of them that have high acids in them. So if you're trying to keep something in circulation um, and you use just a, a regular cello tape, a, a pressure sensitive tape, you we'll get a couple years out of it and then it'll start. Um, I'm sure you've seen where uh, underneath an old piece of tape, it's just um, turns this yellowy brown color. And that's basically just acid migration um, going from the tape into the paper and back and forth, you know, vice versa. And making that strip underneath the tape very weak and fragile and a weak point. So if you ever were to try and pull that off, um, it'll, it, it just creates that as a, a, a really big weak spot. The same thing with like laminates. Um, there was um, a push in the 70s, 80s to laminate everything, especially like big maps because they thought it um, would preserve it forever. Um, and we're finding that they've done this to some really old historic maps. And the laminate itself is actually trans, like the whole acid migration is going back and forth. So things that would have, you know, you've got two of the identical maps, one laminated and one not, the one that's not laminated still looks brand new. And the one that is laminated is browned and yellowed and breaking apart on the inside. And um, you get the bubbling up so there's a big conversation on Twitter when um, everyone was talking about the coronavirus um, COVID vaccine shot cards. And 
should you laminate it or should you not? And um, so for answer than that, I can link to an article on that as well that I was lucky enough to get quoted in. So um, again, with like, we'll get into that with inks. Let me hold that thought. Um, so wheat and rice starch paste are, are relatively stable adhesives, which is why you'll see them used a lot in conservation um, with very fibrous paper, uh, like Japanese tissue paper that has very long strands. Um, so they're relatively um, neutral and stable and very good adhesives for doing reversible repairs. That's why you'll see this a lot. All right, so then colorants, we have different dyes and pigments, and I won't go too much into the difference of dyes and pigments. I don't think that's too big of a deal at the moment for you guys, but I do want to kind of go into um, different types of ink and pencils. So we have two of the things in um, that you should look out for when like processing collections or um, looking at books or manuscripts that are handwritten is you need to be really careful if you're trying to clean it or give it some, to somebody to clean with. I, I know people who have thought something was pen and then tried to erase over it to get the pencil marks behind it off only to realize that what they thought was pen was erasable. You know, it just left the paper magically. Um, you know, mistakes happen, which is why you should always um, photograph what you're working on before and after and taking notes on what you're doing. Starch-based glue is more subject to moisture. Um, not necessarily. It depends on how they're made and if you've given them the proper, if you've dried them in the proper way. So there's a whole process of once you've used this paste, it's not like regular glue where it'll just like dry on your own. If you use too much, you will get little pockets of moisture potentially. Um, but I, I know that if you have like a jar of wheat starch, pa um, starch pastes just kind of hanging out, it will grow mold. But once it's dried onto the document, um, I've not seen any kind of issues with it, but only if it's still wet will I have that issue. Then if, I guess if you had stored it in a place that was incredibly damp, maybe, um, but there would need to be some kind of friction or um, some kind of agitation to, to that repair for it to really do much of anything, if that makes sense. Um, one of the inks that I really wanted to go over was called Iron Gall Ink. And you can find recipes for this online all over the place. And it was one of the longest used inks, um, predominantly used uh, see, as early as the fifth century and the most common in the 12th century into the 20th century. And it was made by um, mixing tannic acid and iron salt. And both of those items are very high acidity. So, they wanted that. They wanted that very high acidity in the iron gall ink because this is when they were writing on parchment. And so having that high acidity on the parchment gave it a really good, um, what they call a bite. And um, it 
you couldn't just erase it. It wouldn't just wash off. The only way to get that iron gall ink off of parchment or vellum was to actually scrape a layer of it off. And the same on paper, you would have to scrape that layer of paper off. Um, however, once we get into more modern papers where they start using the wood pulp um, paper and it has a higher content of that lignin in it, then that's when, if you've ever seen some of those archive documents where it's got this almost it, it looks like it, at one point it was black ink, but it's starting to fade into brown. And it looks like there's some holes, but just where the ink is placed on the paper. And that's because of that high acidity in that ink on that paper that's also very acidic is just eating through it. It's, it's oxidizing um, all of those excess iron compounds and damaging the paper. And it's gonna eat through that paper and the supports and a lot of times you'll get what's called, um, they'll, they'll say that letters have fallen out. So if you have a, you know, a handwritten note and someone's written the word like love, anywhere that two lines you know, make a loop, overlaps with an O or whatever, um, that the center part of that O of the paper will have fallen out. So it's always a fun one. And so a lot of those letters people have actually laminated as well to try and keep stable only to have you know more acid added. Acid is a big problem in, in, in paper. <laughs> and then uh, so then we have traditional ink prints. So um, like uh, art artist prints um, are more oil-based and they're more stable, but often they'll bleed or fade with UV light. So you have to keep them out of direct light. And then we have um, like copies. So laser and inkjet inks uh, laser uh, prints use carbon ink and black and white prints are actually very stable if you're using a laser printer versus an inkjet if you're using if you have items that are in your collection that are printed on inkjet it's dye based instead of um, pigment and it's not light fast so it'll fade with UV light and it's also water soluble so if you have high humidity or um, uh, maybe there's a leak in the building it's just going to wash away whatever's on that paper. And then the last type of paper is like fax paper or heat trans uh, thermal transfer paper. So um, receipts are a really good um, example of this. So they're incredibly unstable because they're just using heat to print onto that paper. So if you've ever left a receipt in your car where it gets hot and you go to take it out and you notice that the entire thing is now black or faded and you can barely read it, um, unfortunately, a lot of political documents and business documents in the 80s and early 90s were all done through fax. So you get these collections that have massive amounts of faxes. Um, and it, they're a bear to try and um, keep stable. So any questions about ink and parchment, vellum, adhesives? Oh, a pencil. Uh, there's a special kind of pencil. It's called a copy pencil, and it looks exactly like graphite. Um, pencil is very stable, by the way. And then this copy pencil is actually the exact opposite. And what would happen is you would write um, whatever note or you wanted to write with your pencil. Then you would wet it and put another piece of paper over it and put pressure on it, and it would that pencil would bleed through. So 
I was reading up on a couple of different articles that was talking about um, conservators that were just trying to, you know, push, push jobs through and washing documents and stuff only to realize the second it hit the water that it washed all the pencil markings off of it, even though it looked exactly like a regular graphite pencil. So if you're ever trying to clean something, especially with any wet methods, it's always best to do a very small test on every single item, no matter what. Um, it's a hard lesson to learn if you have to learn one. Um, sorry, I didn't catch the, how is that countered? Um, we try in, in relation to what was the iron gall ink? No, the, the facts. Um, yeah, the, the receipt paper. So you just have to keep it in very cool conditions. Um, that's really all you can do. Um, and because they're glossy, typically, um, they've got that sizing in the paper as well. Um, it, there's, you just need to have them in paper housing. So paper interleaving it or in acid-free um, bind folders. Um, but there's really, really nothing that you can do about faxes, unfortunately. Um, it, it just one of those things. So, uh, one of the rare times that I'll say that like digitization is probably going to be your best bet um, as far as preservation for those types of items because you can't, it's not reversible once that, that heat damage happens. Um, so a lot of them are still readable, but not, not very. So just unfortunate. So book structures. Um, here are some of the most common books that I encounter in my day-to-day -day job is scrapbooks and then books that are sewn and bound. So mostly case bound, if I'm being honest, and then perfect binding. So those are the loose sheets of paper. So if you were to get a ream of copier paper and then just put glue on one side and then let it dry, that's perfect binding and the lowest sense of the word. Um, scrapbooks could be any kind of mixed media. Typically, it's some kind of book with photographs glued or taped in. Um, could have newsprint in there, drawings, writing, you know, whatever. So those are the most common. Um, let's see, there is a resource. I think the textbook, the Preservation 101, mentions it in one of the sections. It's called a simple book repair manual and it has a link to it. And that's actually a really good resource if you go back and then find that one. Then, let's see, I'm trying to get to all the important bits. So we went over the wood. So the wood boards, they used to have the wood boards as the covers and then they changed it to the basically pulping um, paper and doing really thick paper. and it, there's a couple names for that, like Davy board or bookbinders board, um, or book board, whatever. Um, and it does become acidic over time if it's not um, countered with the alkaline material that goes in there. Let's see. Everything used to be hand sewn, then it was placed by machine over sewing. And so, if you've ever gone onto the shelves in the library and gotten one of those like plasticky looking bound books that's like usually orange or green, that weird green color, um, 
and you go to touch it and you open it and it goes and it like cracks open and then you try to open it and it just like slams shut again because it's been over sewn. So what that means is they've basically just put the, the it's almost always like um, periodicals, like news, um, like magazines or, or something and um, sewn through the spine and they just it just doesn't open, it tears it. Uh, glue always goes everywhere. Um, so that's over sewing and that's pretty common now. Then perfect binding fail all the time. I get those the most often in the lab. And then trying to hurry. Let's see, handling collections. I just want to talk about gloves and questions to ask yourself before you actually handle. Oh, I got a chat. Um, yeah, the Da Vinci drawing. All right, yeah, that one was like heartbreaking and the conservator just felt awful. Oh man. Um, so common damage from handling is like um, the head cap being pulled or torn. Uh, so that's like where that, um, the, that piece of fabric was at the top, the um, top of the book. So people just trying to pull things off the shelf by grabbing the spine and like with their top of their finger at the very top of the book at the top edge and just pulling it so it tips off the shelf and that cracks the spine and it cracks the headband. And um, then you can get tearing, increasing from folded pages, scuffing, marking pencils, lots of highlighters. People for some reason think you're allowed to highlight in library books. Don't know why, but you're not. Um, so before you're actually handling any rare or fragile material, these are some of the questions you can ask yourself. I wanna say that this is actually in your Preservation 101 book, so I'm wasting time reading it. But um, clean, dry hands is always important to me. So most of you might have seen when um, a lot of videos will do the white cotton gloves. So really the only time anybody uses white cotton gloves, like for real, for real, is if they're being interviewed by someone. So a news outlet or a documentary coming in and they will literally just demand, it's like, I need you to wear the white cotton gloves because I want that image. And it's like, but we don't actually do that. And they're like, I know, but I want that image. And so it just keeps perpetuating itself. Um, I almost always will use nitrile gloves above all else um, for hazardous materials and photo on film. You know, always, always, always wear gloves with photos and film because uh, we'll go over it a bit more next week, but your fingerprints um, get on a photo and they don't come off because the oils in your hands will etch into the um, emulsion and um, that's, that's the end game there. And then the best option is just to have clean, dry hands and that's, that's honestly the best 90% of the time. And a lot of people will ask, well, hand sanitizer, I sanitize my hands, is that good enough? And it doesn't because it doesn't wash away the dirt or the grime or the oils. Um, it, does get, it does kill the bacteria because of the high alcohol content in it, but it doesn't actually wash any of the debris off. And a lot of times those hand sanitizers will have additives in it like lotions or aloe or, um, fragrances, things like that, that you don't necessarily want to get onto the book itself. Um, let's see, were there any other fun facts I wanted to add before I ask final questions? I don't think so. I think that was the last slide. Aha, last slide. Okay, so that's all I got. I'm sorry. Um, Damage from little puppy teeth. Oh, I get that a lot. Um, you'd be surprised. At least once a month, I get a book in saying um, uh, the book has been chewed by a dog. And 
half the time it's still wet. <laughs> and then, um, it, and I, you can always tell what kind of dog or at least what size dog by the teeth marks. Um, when you were undergrad, I think they required white gloves for anyone using it too. So when I first started in special collections in 2010, no, 2011, I'm gonna stop my share so you can see my face in case that helps. Um, they were still using cotton gloves for every student. But the problem with cotton gloves is they absorb all the dirt and debris in your hands and sweat, and then all the dirt and debris that's on the books. And it also makes it really hard to hold the items like carefully um, because you have no tactile feel left in your fingers. Um, so you can't easily turn a page. There's, I just, there's so much more damage done to a book when you're using the cotton gloves. And the whole argument behind using them was to keep the oils and dirt from your hands off of it. But if you wash and dry your hands, then the oils in your fingers and hands are minimal to, um, to the book itself. So it's not going to do any damage. There's just so much more damage done with the cotton gloves than the bare hands. Um, and then nitrile gloves, you lose a little bit of dexterity, but not enough to drop a book or not be able to turn a page. So there's all kinds of weird workarounds that they have with the white gloves. Like you have to turn the page with like a micro spatula or use a piece of paper to try and cut through the side of paper. And there's nothing more frustrating than trying to like turn a page of this book that's been oversewn because someone was trying to preserve this like book, um, this like inconobula and they've oversewn it and now it won't open. And you're trying to like use the micro spatula without scraping off the ink on the next page. It just use clean hands. Inconobula is um, books that were made and bound prior to 1400. It's just a fun word that you can use now in your trivia whenever you go. Okay, so I think that's my last slide. I don't have any more there. I don't have any more notes. So unless you have some questions about this week, I have the quiz should be opening up later this evening or tomorrow. I forget what time I had it set to open. Um, I'm still working on grading the virtual lab one. Um, and I realized when I was grading the first discussion that I had put the wrong number of points in. I put 10 instead of 15. So I changed it to 15. And now I just need to go back and adjust everyone's grades. Don't worry. It's going to be adjusted here soon. If you saw that you only got 10 out of 15, um, I just haven't gotten to you yet. Um, what else? Today's the last day for add drop. And. I think that's it. Any questions? Oh, a book that was brought in where the bunny had eaten it. So I've seen books eaten by bunnies. I've seen books burnt because someone left it on the stove. Um, I've seen books, the music library, I get a lot from the music library because they've got that mobile shelving and uh, books will just get knocked off if someone doesn't put them back on right. And the tracks will eat them because you get stuck in the tracks. Um, uh, let's see, 2018, I was gifted a book that they had found on the roof of the library that had been there for at least two years. That was a fun one. 
trying to think of what else I've gotten that was really interesting. Patron damage is usually just um, water damage or forgot it in a backpack or wet or some kind of mysterious liquid. It's usually mystery liquids. Do you have pictures of your favorites? Uh, not currently, but I can upload some. I have to figure out a good way to like do that. Maybe, I don't know if anyone has any interesting suggestions for the best way to upload fun things like that. Maybe a Google doc or something. Mystery liquid. Mystery liquid makes me uncomfortable too because it gets sent to me. And um, I've heard some stories and uh, yeah. There's a lot of really weird things that I found in books too that have been dropped in the book drop. Um, I once had a book that was returned that had a full slice of cake smashed into it um, in the book drop. That one was fun. And then when I started my job here, I inherited a book that someone had used a full banana as a bookmark. And so it had the peel, the banana, everything in there smushed and had a beautiful mold colony growing on it. That was fun. Um, I've gotten condoms in books. Luckily, none used as of yet. Keep you posted. Else, I've had books that have had animals peed on them. I've had one with bird poop on it. You get a lot of fun stuff. So I like to tease that I'm the combination book janitor slash doctor. That's my job slash professional crafter. That's what I do but all day. <laughs> a book on our damage shelf that's growing this whole world. Yeah, that's common. And especially in some of our older buildings, I get a lot of um, leaks and things. And so you'll get these sections that have just not been used in a while and you go in there and it's got like mushrooms growing on it. Um, that was a fun one. That was like when I first started and I think that no one had been working in my position for like eight years or something before I got here. So I got a lot of really fun stuff that I got to deal with when I came in. So, all right. If anyone wants to unmute and ask questions or any more questions, otherwise we're done. You're more than welcome to head out and get some rest. It's a long day. Um, if you want to add into any of those Google Forms, any critiques or commentary, you could probably do it, but I have more questions and just say, hey, the info you're giving us, we read in the book. Uh, I like more hands-on experience or personal experiences or, you know, whatever. Um, I'm just, there's so varied things and so much I wanna share with you guys, but so little time. So um, yeah, just let me know what, you're, what you want more of or less of and I'll see how I can make that happen. Well, good night, everyone. Yay!